May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So I know that the, uh, the hymn board says Trinity Sunday, but uh, were you aware that this is also the octave of Pentecost? So yes, today is the octave of Pentecost, which is more commonly known these days as Trinity Sunday. And the reason behind all that is that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity um, took a while to get defined precisely and concisely by the church, even though we do have the doctrine itself. It's essentially scriptural, but developing the language for that took a while, several centuries. And similarly, the Feast of the Trinity, it really was the last of the major feasts to come to the church calendar. It took a long time to get that on the calendar. For many centuries, the bishops and the other leaders of the church hierarchy, they were hesitant to have a feast that, um, or fast days or feast days, that were not related to particular events of the gospel or particular figures, particular saints and that sort of thing. Um, The celebration of the Trinity as its own holy day was seen as perhaps that's a little too abstract or a little too doctrinal. That's not really the way we do the church calendar. But on a popular level, with the people, the laity, they really, really wanted a a special day to celebrate the Trinity. Even though we do celebrate the Trinity every time we gather to worship, they wanted a special day. And eventually, that does happen. It eventually leads to the addition of Trinity Sunday to the calendar. So here in the Western Church, um, we end up putting it as the octave of Pentecost. We replace the octave of Pentecost with Trinity Sunday, kind of, kind of finishing that celebration of the coming of the Holy Ghost with the celebration of the Trinity, which makes a lot of sense, right? The coming of the Holy Ghost really kind of gives us that final piece in um, that revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. So by the, uh, by the 10th century, many places were spe- uh, celebrating a special feast of the Trinity, but it doesn't become universal and kind of set in stone until the 14th century. Now, in the Eastern Church, what they end up doing eventually is um, celebrating Pentecost Sunday as both the uh, remembrance of the descent of the Holy Ghost, the formation of the church, but also a celebration of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, last week, I came across a quote from professor and theologian Fred Sanders Um, who has recently written several books about kind of rediscovering a more robust Trinitarian theology that's rooted in classical theism. And what uh, Dr. Sanders said, he said this. uh, This was in a talk, I believe. He said, the Trinity, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. The doctrine of the Trinity can indeed be very confusing. It requires us to accept some ideas that are are a bit paradoxical. Not contradictory, but paradoxical. Sometimes maturity as Christians means um, embracing paradox a little bit. The, The doctrine of the Trinity really is the only conclusion that we can draw from the scriptures when we look at the way that God is portrayed, especially in the New Testament. Or if we're going to put it another way, we could say that the doctrine of the Trinity cannot be comprehended, but it can be apprehended. We can't fully understand it, but we can affirm it and believe it. And there are some things we can say about the Trinity, even if it's not fully comprehensible. 
So then what is the doctrine of the Trinity in a nutshell? Well, it can be summarized in a single sentence. Now, we're going to have to put some flesh on those bones, but here's the bones. Here's the single sentence. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, let's expand that a little bit. We need to expand things just a bit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet we do not have three gods. There is only one God. Furthermore, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. The three persons are not parts of God. The God is not divided into three. But neither are the three persons merely different modes or appearances or expressions of a single person. The three persons are distinct. So because of those truths, all of the common analogies that you've probably heard over the years, they really do break down very quickly, right? Um, probably in recent years, most, I, I see some folks grinning because they know where I'm going with this, most, most famously um, or at least popularly summarized in a wonderful video from, uh, from Hans Feeney and Lutheran satire called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. You know, that's modalism, Patrick, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you haven't seen that, see it. it it's, worth, it's worth seeing. But all these analogies, they do break down. And not only do they not express accurately what the Trinity is, they actually express ancient heresies. <laughs> it's not just that they're inaccurate, but they're, 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 her, they're heretical. <laughs> and let's look, let's look at some of these a little bit. So we have the first, the common illustration of water being in three states, you know, liquid, vapor, ice, or the common illustration of a man being a father, a brother, and a son all at the same time. These are examples of the heresy that is called modalism or Sabellianism, where the distinction between the persons is lost. You're confusing the persons. Similarly, the common illustration of the uh, Trinity being like the three leaves of a shamrock, which St. Patrick never said, by the way, <laughs> um, or the three parts of an apple, you know, skin, the meat of the apple and the core, or the three parts of an egg with the shell, the white and the yolk. These are examples of the heresy of partialism where the full divinity of each person is lost. It's God, God is being chopped up in that example. We're losing the simplicity of the Godhead. He, he's being chopped up. God is not made up of parts. Or we have the common illustration of the Trinity as a family. You know, the Trinity is like a family made up of a father, a mother, and children. That's an illustration of the heresy of tritheism, which loses the unity of God, and it makes each person into a separate God. No, we have one God, and there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The creeds of the universal church then help to flesh this out a little bit, as do the various confessions and catechisms of the different particular churches. So the simplest of the three major creeds is the Apostles' Creed, which is based on the baptismal formula, kind of the vows you make at baptism. And in our tradition, we recite it every day in the daily office. So the Apostles' Creed doesn't really get into the precise relationship between the three persons, but it does give us the basic truth of the heresy, as well as it gives us hints as to how each of the three persons relates to us in our salvation. So our catechism tells us what we learn from the Apostles' Creed. The question in our catechism goes like this. 
What dost thou chiefly learn in these articles of thy belief? And in the context of the catechism, the articles of belief is the Apostles' Creed. It's not the articles of religion. Um, it's the Apostles' Creed. The answer. First, I learn to believe in God the Father, who hath made me and all the world. Secondly, in God the Son, who hath redeemed me and all mankind. Thirdly, in God the Holy Ghost, who sanctifieth me and all the people of God. Now, the Nicene Creed, which we just sang, and it's recited by all of the ancient churches, both East and West, as part of the communion liturgy, um, it gives us some more precise language as to the relationship of the three persons. So as we just sang, the Son is described as begotten of his Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The Holy Ghost is described as the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, and in the, in the West we add, and the Son, um, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. And then we have our third creed, the Athanasian Creed, which, which is what we're talking about in Sunday school right now, and that's technically a bit more of a hymn or a canticle rather than a creed. It fleshes out these relationships even more, gives more precision to how we understand this. Again, um, listen to the Sunday School recording today. Show up next week. Get some coffee here rather than at Starbucks, and, uh, and we'll talk about that. So in, our, in the Creed, when the Son is described as being of one substance with the Father, the uh, fathers of the Council of Nicaea were making the case that our Lord Jesus, God the Son, is truly and really God. Now, by contrast, the arch-heretic of the ancient world, Arius, and his followers, they were arguing that the Son was merely of like substance with the Father. That is, they were saying that Jesus was merely a divine being who was similar, yet inferior to the Father. And at some point, the Father had to make him. No, that's not what we believe. And, in, and unfortunately, this error does prop pop up from time to time, and it persists today among groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. This language of substance or essence in the creed, while it was borrowed from Greek philosophy of the time, it's the way that we precisely express in theological terms the truth that we find in Scripture that Jesus is indeed worshipped as God because he is God. Remember, St. Thomas confessed that, my Lord and my God. We see St. Paul and all the apostles confessing similarly in their writings as we go throughout the New Testament. It also expresses the truth, this idea of substance or essence. It expresses the truth that Jesus and the Father are one, as our Lord himself stated, and that he is preexistent, as St. John wrote. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then when we're describing in the creed the relationship of the Son to the Father as being begotten, not made, we're echoing, again, the very words of Scripture. We see this language of, of the Son being begotten in several passages, but the well, most well most well-known, that's a long weekend of, of synod, by the way. <laughs> the one that's most well-known is perhaps John 3.16.
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Similarly, in the Creed, when when it says that the Holy Spirit, that he with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, we're again stating the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are clear that only God is worthy of our worship. And, and while we might not see express examples of the person of the Holy, Holy Spirit being worshipped in the same way that we do see with the Father and the Son, we do see several passages in the, in the New Testament where Old Testament quotations that have God speaking or acting are expressly described as the speech or action of the Holy Ghosts. St. Paul will say something to the effect of, um, as the Spirit spake, and then he quotes Jehovah doing something in the Old Testament. As the Spirit acted, and then he quotes an Old Testament passage that's expressly described as it being Yahweh acting. This creed's description of the Spirit as the one who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, again, these are echoes of the way that Scripture describes the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and to the Son, especially the passages of John 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus says again and again that the Spirit would be sent by the Father and the Son. And that word, that very word proceedeth is found in John 15, 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Latin word that we get, our word proceed, um, it it encompasses both the Greek idea of being sent in there and that procession, which are different terms, different connotations in the Greek. The Latin really covers all of it, which is why in the West we do say, and the Son. Now, we could say a whole lot more about all of this, but we're going to conclude the description of the Trinity with the first of our 39 articles of religion. We confess there is but one living and true God everlasting without body parts or passions, passions being the emotions that kind of drive what you do, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, at the beginning of the homily, I mentioned that there has been something of a recovery in recent years of a more robust way of looking at the Trinity that's rooted in classical theism. That is, the kind of things that we express in Article 1 and the following articles, um, this this very old-school way of talking about God. Um, and, and this, this is a return to the classical patterns of our history as Christians because all of the early controversies of the first several hundred years of the church, as well as all of the early councils that were summoned to hammer out these controversies, to deal with these controversies, these were about hammering out in theologically precise terms what we believe about the Holy Trinity. And the reason why we've needed a more recent recovery of these ideas is that for the last two to three hundred years, much of the church has wondered how these truths affect us in our regular lives and ministry. That is, they'll say, well, these ideas might be fascinating to theologians, but what do they matter for us regular folk? 
We've kind of forgotten how the Trinity works in our regular lives. Well, this was pointed out in the same article from the Gospel Coalition where I encountered that quote from Fred Sanders, um, that you may be surprised at how you do know and how you do encounter these Trinitarian truths already and just might not have realized it. For example, as Anglican Christians in particular and as liturgical Christians in general, um, we our worship and our liturgy is always deeply Trinitarian. Listen very carefully when we're doing the consecration liturgy later on for Holy Communion and see how all three persons of the Trinity are active and playing a part when we receive the sacrament. Um, we, we, we've already talked about how we regularly recite the creeds and confess these Trinitarian truths um, and teachings in our, in our worship. But we also regularly sing the Gloria and Excelsis. Again, listen to that when we sing that later on. It's very Trinitarian. We, we um, sing the Te Deum Laudamus during morning prayer. Um, our recessional hymn is a paraphrase of the Te Deum. Very, very Trinitarian sort of hymn. We append the Gloria Patri to our psalms and our canticles, um, as we also did for the introit. Um, all of that brings in confessions of the Trinity and praise to the Trinity into our regular worship. And all of the ancient hymnody of the church, as well as the best of more recent hymnody, they are deeply, deeply Trinitarian. Um, we, we, we sang holy, holy, holy as the processional this morning. We sang that a couple times at Synod. And uh, that's one of those hymns that anytime you gather Christians and you do that, A, everybody knows it. B, everybody's singing it at the top of their lungs. If they, uh, have, any, if they have any background in singing, they're actually singing it in four-part harmony because we all can learn the harmony for that. Um, it is one of the best, and it's, it's relatively recent. But all of the best of our hymnody is deeply Trinitarian. Furthermore, if you are a Christian who professes faith in Christ, has repented of your sins, and has been baptized, you are already engaged in deeply Trinitarian theology. Over the last few weeks in our gospel lessons, we've read that it is the Holy Spirit who brings us to faith in Christ. He's the one that brings us to the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who brought you to the Father through that faith in the Son. Through Christ, you know and approach the Father. And when you pray, the Holy Spirit is working in your prayers. Even when you don't know the words, he is interceding on your behalf. He's, and when you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about the gospel of the Lord Jesus so that you can then be in fellowship with God the Father. And then finally, because of the incarnation, the eternal love that exists between the three persons of the Trinity is now yours as well. As we read in uh, 1 John, God is love. We all know that verse, right? God is love. God did not have to make us to have someone to love. That phrase, God is love, is Trinitarian. No, the three persons of the Trinity have always had an eternal and perfect love among themselves. The creation of man and his love for us is a spilling over of that eternal love that has always existed between the persons of the Trinity. And then when God the Son, by the power of the Holy Ghost, 
and as part of the eternal designs of God the Father, joined a perfect human nature to his eternal divine nature, our Lord Jesus became one of us forever and ever. Through that union of Christ's human and divine natures, he brings us into that same fellowship that he has with the Father and the Holy Ghost. Our prophet, priest, and king, our perfect representative and covenant head. He is eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he brings us with him into that unity. As St. Athanasius provocatively said, for he was made man that we might be made God. That is, one of us is on God's throne, and we have been forever united to him by his blood as signified in our baptism and our Holy Communion. This then does indeed lead us to worship. This leads us to follow God's commands. This leads us to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so then echoing the collect, we pray that God would keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. All things come of thee, O Lord.